Leading organizations with intentionality and purpose is complex work. And dedicated leaders work tirelessly each and every day to build impactful cultures of collaboration. But effective collaboration is difficult and messy. The good news is you don't have to do it alone. Join the Jigsaw Learning Team for Leading Collaborative Response, sharing insights for leaders committed to establishing, refining, and deepening collaborative response in their organization. Welcome back to another episode of Leading Collaborative Response. I am joined by my colleagues, Colette Sylvester and Marilyn Schmitke. So hello, ladies. Hello, Jen. Hi, Jen. You are new to our audience because typically we've done this with Curtis and Lorna, but you bring some perspective in leading collaborative response. So before we dive into planning for collaborative team meetings and addressing those four mistakes that Curtis mentioned in the last episode, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. So Colette, I turn to you first. Give us your background, your role with Jigsaw Learning, and kind of the work that you do with our partners right now. Sure. So I have a, a background largely immersed in inclusive education. So uh, probably the last 15 years of my career, uh, I have been uh, part of school leadership and learning support. Uh, so I have worked in learning support from preschool with, you know, a puff students all the way to grade 12. Uh, I did my master's through UFC uh, in uh, large part on universal design for learning. So uh, in educational research in teaching assessment and learning. Uh, so I think uh, being called to, to jigsaw learning is kind of how I describe it because uh, in my career, when I, I came across uh, collaborative response, I was so incredibly uh, drawn towards it because I, I saw it as a tool to build capacity for teachers uh, to differentiate for their students and, and really offer more universal supports uh, in all domains of learning um, to really change the way that we function together as teams uh, within schools. So that's my story. And Marilyn, what about you? So my background as well is all special needs primarily. So from kindergarten through high school as well. And the last probably 15 to 20 years of my um, school years with Edmonton Public were all in administration with the last 12 years as principal. And um, I think I fell into the collaborative response work really quite by accident. And I had been doing a lot of the professional learning communities work. And there was just some pieces missing for me out of that. And I didn't have a clear understanding of what that looked like when we came together to talk about, okay, so we've identified kids, we've asked those questions. Now, what does it look like when we come together to talk about, okay, so now what do we do to support our kids? What does that look like when we choose actionable items? So how do we track how we support those kids? So it was really collaborative response in its infancy 
way back when, and it was the trifold boards. So when I made the decision to um, retire from Edmonton Public, and there was an opportunity to come work with uh, Jigsaw Learning and become a learning associate, of course, I jumped at that opportunity. And it really completely aligned with everything that I've loved to do in the school setting. And that's really around supporting kids. And at that tier two level, that classroom, how do we differentiate to make sure that we're supporting absolutely every student all the way through. And it's capturing those kids at that space before we wait until it's, you know, kids are really, really struggling. It's helping capture those kids when they're just, you know, at that space and time before it's too late for them. And really at that place where we can make a difference and building that capacity for staff to be able to make that difference for kids. So that's my story. So I'm going to bring you both back to the last part of that question. What is it you're doing with Jigsaw Learning now around work with partners? So Marilyn, I'm going to start with you. What work do you do with our partners? My work, Jen, is primarily working with admin teams with that collaborative response work. So lots of consultations that I get to do just one-to-one. -one. And so <clears throat> lots of times those admin teams have already taken part in some bigger sessions with colleagues and have come to me to say, okay, so where do I get started? Or I've had my first few collaborative team meetings and I've maybe run into this issue and, you know, kind of help me navigate this or in your experience, what have you done and what's worked for you? Or maybe here's a collaborative team meeting that I've done. Can I get an extra set of eyes just to get a little bit of feedback on some celebrations? What am I doing well? And what would you maybe have me consider as some potential next steps moving forward? So those are the pieces that I get to help people with and just really be an elbow partner with them to understand their context and help them navigate the collaborative response world in their buildings. And Colette, I know your role, you have the same title as Marilyn as Learning Associate, but I know some of the work is the same and some of it is different. Yeah, so as a Learning Associate, I am doing a lot of the core leadership day training where I'm working with whole, whole school districts or parts of their districts um, in the professional learning with their leadership teams. So, uh, that work, you know, it's it's really exciting because I'm I'm working whole whole group, but then I have the opportunity to do breakout sessions uh, with all of those teams with different schools um, throughout those days, and then I also do a lot of the uh, collaborative team meeting feedback as well. So when I have um, different schools, will send me their recordings, or I participate in a live session where I will observe and then they meet with me to follow up and, and give some feedback and direction on, you know, something that they can um, 
be excited about that they're doing really well and on the right track. And then maybe, uh, you know, a few things that they might need to focus on uh, to make things better in their meetings moving forward. Well, I've only heard our partners rave about you. And I know you've both had experience from collaborative response kind of in its infancy, either with Curtis and Lorna or finding the book on your own and then growing it from there. So I'm really looking forward to unpacking the planning for collaborative team meetings so that you can focus on the practicality of that. I know Curtis talked about the four mistakes that leaders make in setting up those team meetings. So we'll address those and how that might look in context. And I thank you both for being here today. So building off of Curtis's four mistakes, the first thing he talked about was the communication of purpose. So Marilyn, I turn to you as a principal of a school. How did you communicate that purpose to your staff? Well, Jen, we talked at, at our school about that fact that, I mean, we were seeing an increase in such diverse needs in all of our classrooms right across the board and the difficulty that we were experiencing in you know, each teacher trying to meet that diverse range of needs in every classroom being such a challenge for each of us. And the fact that, you know, it, we were pretty good at having conversations about kids needing support at that tier three level and um, pretty good about having conversations and meetings around supports for those kids. But when did we ever have time embedded or otherwise to come together as a team to have structured conversations about kids needing supports at tier two at the classroom level? And the answer was, well, quite frankly, never. We were having them at lunchtime with our bestie across the hall. Um, teachers were coming in on the weekends to have those conversations and to plan. Um, they just, they really just weren't happening on a structured basis. Um, and I know Paulette, you probably have something to add there as well. You were sharing a point about that previously. Well, just this idea of the the clogging of the freeway. So as a learning strategist, um, what we would find is that kids would go from that tier one, what I'm doing for everybody, and then skip right to tier three to learning, learning strategists to um, get some outside supports. And, and really what we needed to do is step back and say, well, you know what, we need some professional development here around universal design. And what's it's not a one size fits all um, that we're differentiating for students. Sometimes we're differentiating, um, thinking we're only going to be doing it for one or two students in the class and find out that actually everybody benefits. So it goes from being a tier two differentiated strategy and moves into that tier one universal support. So one of the things I think about are like visual schedules. Uh, having those available to everyone and, and the significant impact it has for all students. Um, having those wobble seats in, in high school classes can, can support the student with ADHD for sure, but also can support the student who was up playing hockey till 11 o'clock and never got to bed till one in the morning because they were trying to get their homework done um, and they need to stay awake in class. So just what are you doing to differentiate within your classroom? Instead of jumping from tier one to tier three, we now have 
a focus on building the capacity of uh, the resources within a school staff and the different things that teachers are doing. Um, we're having intentional conversations now about what are those strategies that we're utilizing that maybe we don't even realize are having a big impact. Well, I know, I, I think I finally clued in when I was offering leveled literacy instruction as principal. And so we, <laughs> we had gone from you know, that tier one supports at the classroom level. And then suddenly I ended up with 60 referrals for level literacy intervention, which we know is certainly not manageable. And then I realized this is not the fault of the classroom teacher. I clued in that we just didn't have that skill set in terms of differentiation at the classroom level. So we dumped a lot of, of time, we, a lot of resources into that differentiation practices at the classroom level. And that was, that was a couple of years of really boosting that and really focusing on the importance of tier two supports. And it wasn't, I think initially it was viewed as maybe downloading some of the responsibility on the classroom teacher. Yes. But we really viewed that more so as no this is about building some expertise and some capacity for teachers this isn't about downloading responsibility this is about boosting that skill set because look at the diverse range of needs that each of us has within that classroom this is about really harvesting that collective wisdom of the team and being able to come together in that, you know, hopefully that embedded time within the school day, or at least at the end of a school day, where we can come away with some actual actionable items that are time bound, and we can come back and say, hey, you know what, I actually tried this, it worked for this student, let's add that to the toolkit that, you know, here's something that can actually work for another student, and we can start to duplicate some of those successes for other kids. And where I saw some significant impact and shift in the mindset about the purpose of the meetings was when I saw a veteran teacher uh, listen to a first-year teacher talk about one of the strategies that they were using to support a student who was disorganized. And it was so exciting to see the sharing of, wow, like this first year teacher is helping me. And so it leveled the playing field in the meetings too, where uh, everybody can come into the meeting um, at the same level. We're learning from each other. And it's not about, you know, well, that'll never work, or I've tried that. It's about, yeah, you know what, you might be right, maybe this won't work, but maybe it will. And it's truly about what might work, because we, doing nothing is not an option so moving into again that that next mistake that curtis talked about in, in that pre-meeting preparing teachers for the meeting right so we talk about that pre-meeting organizer in your experiences how have you helped teachers leverage that particular tool so in my role i've had the opportunity of seeing school teams use that document in a few different ways it 
it's pretty important just in my experience that each team member completes their own pre-meeting organizer and and there's a couple of reasons behind that i think when you complete your own it gives you that chance to really think about even though these are our students as a collective it gives you that time to really consider the issues that you're seeing in your context it also gives you as a team because I, i've seen i've seen teams where they've completed a group pre-meeting organizer but what you miss out on is that opportunity as a team to come together in the meeting and ask clarifying questions first. So when you do a group meeting organizer and you do it online and you pick what you think is the key issue and you add all of these student names to it and then you come into the conversation, you've missed that opportunity to ask one another clarifying questions. So you come into the conversation with the assumption that this is going to be the conversation when really it's actually this is the key issue. So you've inadvertently added student names to something that truly is not the issue at hand. So my perspective is that that pre-meeting organizer really should be done by individuals. But I think if we're really being honest, I think if you do a group pre-meeting organizer, I think it also gives folks an opportunity to hide a little bit behind what other people have already added to the doc. That's my perspective. And if I'm truly being honest, I, uh, I think it's important for each person to bring their own. Well, I agree. And I actually think it, it also comes into engagement in the meeting that when a teacher sits down to do their own pre-meeting organizer, take a few minutes to think about what the key issue that they're really having um, based on the focus area for the meeting. I think they come into the meeting with um, more intention, uh, more engagement, uh, because they get to actually listen to other people's ideas and, and in that brainstorming session about um, you know, these are some, some of the things that you can try. You can talk about the things that you've tried already. Um, and I think it brings you more skin in the game. It's the, <laughs> I don't know how else to word it, but it really, it makes people um, come to the meeting for the purpose of getting something back. So I, I'm coming in with this um, difficult situation, this issue that I'm having with a student and I come away with something I'm going to try. And I think that's empowering for everybody and, and, and more engaging. Even think about celebrations. I mean, every student, right? Every, every teacher should have a student from their classroom that they're celebrating. So when you think about your teachers using those organizers, how was it communicated that, that they could, they should, it was expected? When was it expected? When was the reminder? Like practically, how did that become part of your process? Sorry, I just had mine on my um, weekly memo. So the week of the um, collaborative team meeting, I made sure that that went out in the memo, that folks had to have their pre-meeting organizer completed. 
and I had a link to that. So, and it was always in our weekly or always in our calendar as well. So our teams knew exactly when their meetings were going to be. So that was always well in advance. My funny story is that, you know, we weren't doing the pre-meeting organizer because it was a high school setting and everyone thought, well, that's ridiculous. Why would we need to do that? We'll skip that part. Um, and there was no focus for the meeting. And now a couple of years later, they, you know, the, the school, I'm no longer with them anymore, but they've brought the pre-meeting organizer in. And I think it's been a real shift. Um, but one of the most Im, Im, I guess I want to say impressive uh, ways that I've seen uh, a facilitator principal distribute those collaborative team meeting uh, pre-organizers is to go out, hand a piece of paper with the pre-meeting organizer, talk to the people that were going to be having a meeting that week, give them their role, tell them the focus. It was all on the pre-meeting organizer and on the paper. So then people just wrote on the paper and it was easy for him to see who had done it. Um, and it, it was meant to be a three minute activity, but he also got to connect with everybody coming into the, the CTM. So I like that. I thought that was kind of neat. Colette, you just talked about the roles and gave giving people the roles, which leads into the third mistake Curtis mentioned. So in your experience, because I know you've both come from different places and worked with a number of different schools, how do you see that that distribution of leadership happening with those roles? I think especially in, in middle and high schools, uh, there's that perception that roles are uh, not something that they need. That's kind of an elementary idea, but to think of it more as a, a job, a, a way to differentiate tasks in the meeting so that the one person who's facilitating isn't the octopus, right? Where you see them trying to juggle to juggle all the jobs in the meeting and dropping all the balls because they can't do everything effectively so just knowing that by distributing the leadership roles in the meeting um, it can be far more impactful and successful so it's really just about making sure that everybody has a job and and they make the meeting far more impactful that way I would agree with that. Yeah. Having spent a lot of my career in junior high as well, I would say that for the most part, we don't mind um, being part of meetings as long as we know that they're going to be efficient. There's going to be some reasonable distribution of tasks and that there's actually follow through. Yeah. And those, those leadership roles help us to achieve that. We were joking a little bit earlier about how sometimes the roles can have fun names. You know, you've got the the negative Nancy and the intentional interrupter and and those yeah. sorts of things. And how depending on the context, those fun names may or may not be accepted by the group. <laughs> and I, I don't think they're necessary. So, I mean, I think that's what's so beautiful is that it's not a it's, it's not about doing it one way. It's got to fit the context of your school and your staff. Yeah, would some of those have flied and flown, flew? <laughs> would some of those have worked <laughs> in my junior high settings? Probably not in my elementary. Yeah, absolutely. You have to know your audience. That's what I would say. Yeah. 
<laughs> Let your staff name them. They'll have fun with it. We're going to address Curtis's fourth mistake before we move into some other ways and other means of preparing for collaborative team meetings. But if we look at that fourth mistake of, of not sharing an agenda or not having an agenda in your experience, what did the agenda look like? Where was it posted? How was it communicated? How did you make the, the agenda real for your staff? Yeah, so I, I think that we went through multiple versions of our agenda. Um, some versions had more integrity than others, if I'm, if I'm being completely honest, before we finally landed on one that made the most sense and that had all the components, all of the, you know, the structures necessary for um, for a quality collaborative team meeting and that really fit the time constraints that we had. And then, um, yeah, it was just a standing document that we kept. And how was that communicated? It was um, at that time, we just had Google Doc that we kept. So it was always that running doc um, and communicated always the same way that that link was in our, um, our weekly memo. It was in our Google Drive. So it was always easy for people to access. But uh, yeah, there were definitely many iterations of that document. <laughs> it caused a little bit of confusion, but yeah, once once it was consistent for longer than a year, I think we were we were definitely on the right track. Well, and I I think having observed many different uh, iterations of agendas and through you know observing collaborative team meetings, um, one of the things that I I see when there's a an agenda that aligns with the structure of the meeting and sometimes that even in, includes the amount of time for each section of the meeting the the meeting tends to run just really smooth and, and efficiently because everybody's looking at it everybody knows what to expect and what's coming next and there's no no surprises and there's less likely um, the chance that a story is going to take over what's happening in the meeting. Cause you know, that I think it's in our nature as teachers to go into the backstory and to tell that story. Um, and I think when there's an agenda, everybody's looking at that um, it's more likely that people are going to stay on task. I think iterations, I think that's a good word to describe the collaborative response work as a whole. And I look back at some of those reflecting on collaborative response documents, some of those rubrics. And initially, in that first year, you know, when you look at that rubric and you think, oh, yeah, you know, according to my understanding of what this means this year in this moment, this is where we would say we're at. Yeah. But as the years progress and your understanding of what that means deepens, where you would put yourself on that rubric continues to change. So when you talk about iterations, I believe for, for me in my progress and my understanding of collaborative response over the years, that's why we continue to go through all of those iterations of documents and 
processes and structures because your understanding just continues to deepen. In our profession, we are called to evolve and learn and, um, you know, continuously try to improve things. So, um, of course, as you, your understanding deepens, I think, yeah, you change things up. Jen, I had mentioned to you not too long ago, um, I had heard somebody saying something about, um, well, I need to change so that I can, I can better, I'm, you know, I can better implement some of this collaborative response work. And I can't remember how you worded it, but it wasn't about changing. Um, you, you phrased it so nicely. It was something about evolving. As we learn, we grow, we evolve. But, but to think that, you know, that we're Lego pieces. And if I take out the blue piece and put in the red piece, then suddenly I'm going to be better. Yeah. It's yeah. not how things happen. No. Right. We, we grow from experience. And uh, I, I had a coach explain to me at one point in time, cause I, cause I made some comment about, you know, I, I did this badly and it's not that I did it badly, that my, my, my perspective has changed. It's yeah. that I did it from a place of inexperience. And so the more that we experience things, the more able we have, the, the more capacity I have to do those things well. Yeah. So it's, not, it's not that I'm bad. It's not that I need to change. It's that I need to learn. I appreciated how you phrased that. So thank you for that. No, thank you. Because <laughs> yeah, the, the idea of, oh, if I just take this part out and put this in, I'm going to be right. fixed. That's yeah. not how it works. We, we, nope. we don't treat children that way. Why would we expect that of ourselves? Yeah. yeah. So I know you two have done a lot of work um, around planning for collaborative team meetings beyond just the four mistakes that Curtis talks about, right? Colette, I know you are in love with a number of the different templates that exist. And, and Marilyn, I know from your experience that sometimes having those, that many templates can be overwhelming. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to separate this part into two pieces and say, Colette, (laughs) let's talk about the templates you love. And then Marilyn, I'm going to turn to you and say, okay, how are we going to actualize the use of those templates? So Colette, I turn to you first. My favorite document of all is the facilitation overview. So when you're first First, first starting out with collaborative team meetings, the facilitation overview just tells you everything that you need to do before the meeting starts. And then it tells you what to be thinking about um, as you're facilitating the meeting. And it goes through all of the steps um, that you're going to follow as you're you're working through that those first uh, meetings. And then again, what you're doing at the end of the meeting and when you're closing the meeting and going back to actions. And so I just like the way that it was step-by-step and there's links to it. Um, I know there's a lot of other documents, but that one I think just nails it in terms of um, when you're first starting out, it's a really good uh, document. So Colette just talked about one of the many templates that exists within the Jigsaw Learning website and the Jigsaw Learning membership that are both available if you go to jigsawlearning.ca. So Marilyn, I turn to you because, like I said, we've talked a lot about how as a new leader or even as a seasoned leader, the number of templates that exist 
and the amount of information you can get in an introductory session can be completely overwhelming. Yeah. So as a school leader and as someone who consults with school leaders on implementing collaborative response, how do you take those templates that are there and figure out which ones do we use? How are we going to use them? How do we make them work? Well, that is definitely a question that I'm asked frequently. Mm -hmm. um, I work with, as you know, a number of admin teams across the province. And of course, they absolutely enjoy the sessions that they attend. But I mean, it's it's certainly a lot of information, as everybody knows. And so one of the questions that I get is, okay, where do I start? This is a ton of information. And my question is always, tell me about your context. And where do you believe you need to go? Because there isn't, and I, and I know lots of times people don't want to hear, you know, there isn't one right place to start because they want to know, you know, tell me where do I need to start? I need to understand, tell me about the context. Although there are the, the current, correct, I guess, if you will, processes and structures, specific, that's a better word. There are specific context processes and structures. There are multiple pathways to get to that end goal. Yeah. So you as an admin team might know that here's your end goal, but there's multiple pathways to get there. So you know your school team, you know that while you think hey, you know what, a continuum of supports might be a great place for us to start. Is that the right way? Well, that's up to you. You know your staff best. If you feel that this makes the best sense for you, and I can have that conversation with you and ask you questions and help you think that through, if that makes the best sense and it ties in with professional learning that you're already engaged in, and it makes the most sense, then let's go that way. If you think that this is the next step, but your staff have identified, maybe it's through some data and assessment pieces, then let's go that way. We can absolutely tie that into your collaborative team meeting conversations. So there really is no one right answer. Then we can start looking at those documents and say, so of those documents, how can we start tying in pieces of those? So how can we bring in some of the data documents? Let's have some of that data available at our elbow. We don't have to go into great detail with it, but we can use it as a little reference at our elbow to say, you know, when we're looking at additional kids to add to a conversation, Let's use that as a quick reference. And we can say, well, how about this student? Is this maybe a student we could add to a key issue? So we're not doing a deep dive into it, but it's simply there at an elbow for a quick reference. So there are just some really simple ways that you can start tying in some of those additional forms. So it doesn't have to be a piece that we overthink. There are just some really quick, easy ways that you can start bringing in some of those additional pieces. Marilyn, you talk about recognizing context. So I know that your backgrounds for schools and your experiences and the roles you have with Jigsaw Learning are very different. 
So I come to this question of planning for collaborative team meetings. How do we schedule them? How would you suggest a leader approach the idea of laying out a year or planning for those implementation of those meetings? Okay, so ideally, collaborative team meetings, you're planning at that four to five week interval. In a semestered system, you might be looking at a more frequent interval. In an elementary junior high and understanding that there are you know, there are other things that come up during the school year. There are holidays. So, you know, even if you're looking at that, sometimes it's four to six weeks, but you certainly do not need to be looking at that every two week scenario. So every, you know, four to six weeks in that window, if you can manage it, that's ideal. I do have some insight because I interviewed about you know, five or six different principles last year in terms of what their process was. Um, and most often it was, um, you know, looking at the jigsaw's recommendation in terms of timeline and then looking what already exists in their schedule and going from there. So looking at their timetable and seeing opportunities to, um, schedule it in. So if most often it was, you know, pre-existing PLC time um, and saying, okay, we're going to have three rounds of PLCs. And then on the fourth week, it's going to be a collaborative team meeting. So looking at those existing structures within your school sometimes is a good starting place. And that really was consistent in just about all of the meetings that I had. But it's not just about the collaborative team meetings. It's about every single meeting that currently exists in the school and how do they support one another. I think part of that planning goes back to the clarity and predictability that Curtis talks about in the idea that we know when the meetings are going to take place. So having that year planned out of these are the dates of our collaborative team meetings and we're going to honor those dates and they're not going to move unless absolutely necessary, I think is important in establishing that culture that these meetings are important. I had my staff describe that time repeatedly as a very precious, valuable time. So you're absolutely right. Once that time is scheduled, it is untouchable. And in time then when you have your your plan laid out, you're tying in all of your meetings. It's not just the collaborative team meetings, but then all of your meetings get connected, no matter what kind of meeting it is. And your assessment dates, all of that becomes interconnected. Yes. Yeah. We've talked about the practicality of implementing things to address the four mistakes that Curtis identified in setting up collaborative team meetings. We've talked a little bit about the templates that are available and how we could approach them in the contextual way. We've talked about scheduling and planning for collaborative team meetings over the course of the year. So I'm gonna to come to the WeCollab question this week. This question is brought to you by WeCollab. 
Designed by educators for educators, this comprehensive digital system aligns with the foundational components of collaborative response. Moving from conversation to action, WeCollab empowers classrooms, schools, and systems to provide the very best response for each and every child by informing action-based decision-making with data and evidence supporting student success. What would you say is the most important thing for a leader to consider when planning for their collaborative team meetings? Establishing a focus ahead of time is something that is really critical. Um, otherwise, people come in with key issues that are all over the map. It's hard to have a um, concise meeting. Whereas when there is a focus for that meeting and you plan from that focus, um, you know, everything from the pre-meeting organizer to your agenda, the focus is clearly um, established. It's communicated to everyone. Um, I think it has a huge impact on the success of meetings. And then when you start bringing in, in data and uh, evidence um, tying into that focus, it's just so much easier when you've had that as part of your um, approach to meetings. That's my opinion. I 100% agree with Colette. And I would say in terms of worries that you might be bringing to the table, I would say try to leave those at the door. Once you're prepared, you have your focus, leave your worries at the door. It's not going to be perfect. Appreciate that you have a lot of pieces that you're juggling at the same time. You're trying to remember what comes next in the conversation. You're trying to remember, you know, you still want to be authentic in the conversation. You're trying to remember all of the roles that are at play in the conversation. It's, it's okay. It's okay to make mistakes in it. It's okay to be learning. It's exactly what we expect of our students and of our staff. Just relax, go with the process, trust it, and you'll be fine. I think if you really um, try to remember that the relationships that you create and build in the collaborative team meeting with, with your staff, um, that's really the driving force. So being authentic, like Marilyn said, and being vulnerable and, and everybody can know like, Hey, we're, we're all learning this together and it's not supposed to be perfect. We're, we're learning together. So I think that relationship piece actually is, is one of the driving forces for sure. Well, and if we're trying to build capacity on our team, we want other people to learn to be facilitators. We need to be vulnerable in that process so they can see we're stumbling, we're learning that process. It, it's okay to make mistakes. They're going to be more likely to step up and say, I'll give it a go. It's okay if I stumble too. And laugh. Like and Laughter should be part of the whole collaborative team meeting. Like it's not meant to be this robotic thing, right? That's right. <laughs> a 
Well, ladies, you have given a great segue to our next episode, which is going to be the art of facilitating the collaborative team meeting. And again, I so look forward to you sharing your perspectives with our audience. And I thank you so much for your time today. We can hardly wait. Thanks so much, Jen. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Colette. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Marilyn. Ensuring success for all students is a moral imperative for all schools, but it takes a highly coordinated framework of structures and processes to maximize the collective capacity of the team. In Collaborative Response, three foundational components that transform how we respond to the needs of learners, we share an organizational mindset that involves fundamental shifts for schools and districts. Numerous school and district examples, as well as access to a large number of resources, are provided within the text and in the accompanying companion website. Join the growing number of schools using Collaborative Response to ensure high levels of success for students and staff, stemming from the essential belief that every child deserves a team. I appreciate that Colette's and Marilyn's examples reinforce Curtis's messages around predictability and clarity with respect to planning for collaborative team meetings. But I think today's key learnings focus on practicality and context. The practicality of taking those things that are theoretical, those ideas, and leveraging them within the school in order to enhance instructional practice, build capacity, and grow expertise. And the idea that there are multiple pathways. The implementation of collaborative team meetings is contextual. And where you start with a collaborative team meeting is not where you will end because there is structures and processes to be implemented with integrity in order to have a full collaborative team meeting. But those components, the planning for the occurrence of those meetings and when they're going to happen in relation to other meetings, as well as bringing in the data and evidence and building that continuum of supports and leveraging it during those meetings, your place to start is going to come from knowing your staff as you grow collaborative response in your schools. So I thank them both for bringing to the forefront, again, practicality and context. For more on collaborative response, visit jigsawlearning.ca or join the JL Insider to receive access to newly added resources and content. Make sure to follow us on social media. Subscribe to the podcast and the Jigsaw Learning YouTube channel to access past and upcoming episodes. Join us again to continue to build your own capacity in leading collaborative response in your context.